mutter, 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 banter, 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 banter. Witty banter, witty banter, mutter, 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 mutter. Oh, hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Phil, and this is Pizza Toast, a YA books and media podcast. Now, you might be wondering where Christy is, but don't worry, she'll be popping up in just a bit. But this is a very special episode for us. Wait, you're probably thinking, isn't this going to be Mockingjay Part 2? Oh, no, my friends, you're going to have to wait until next week for that one. Because we have a guest on who we interviewed about... The Hunger Games. I mean, unsurprisingly. She is Professor Roxanne Hard, a professor of English and department chair at the University of Alberta's Augustana faculty. Uh, professor Hard is a Fulbright scholar and McCullough University professor. Uh, she researches and teaches American literature and culture, focusing on children's literature and popular culture. She's published over 50 peer-reviewed articles and uh, I've read some of them. So I read one of her articles, and we cover this in the interview, and it just blew my mind, and I had to have her on the show, so here she is. Just go with it. It's an interview with an academic who knows more about this stuff than Christy and I probably ever can, so uh, I'll just let you listen. Okay, well, everyone, please welcome to the show uh, Roxanne Hard. Uh, she is professor of English and department chair at the University of Alberta's Augustana faculty. Uh, she is a multi-award winner, a multi-grant receiver. Uh, she's written books. She's edited books. She's written so many articles. And I just happened to find uh, a, a writing of hers of, that is pertinent to our discussion. And the, uh, hold on one sec, edit this out. Uh, the title is, Are You Preparing for Another War? Unslash Just War and the Hunger Games Trilogy. Uh, it was published in the journal Jeunesse, Young People, Text, Cultures, Volume 11, Issue 1 from the summer of 2019. Christy, I'm very excited to have Roxanne Hard on the show. Welcome, uh, Roxanne Hard. Well, thank you. <laughs> Good uh, to be here, Phil and Christy. Good to meet you. Hello. To talk about something I haven't really been thinking about much in the last couple of years, but it's nice to revisit the old work now and again. That's fine, because when we started doing this series, we realized that no one had been thinking about The Hunger Games in quite a few years. Uh, well, that might be. Well, I did actually. The first the first journal I sent this paper to um, just fired it right back with, I'm just sick of The Hunger Games from the editor. <laughs> oh, we didn't fun. even go into peer review. It was just like, no, wow. we've had enough. I've had enough of this. No more Hunger Games papers for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, Jeunesse was quite open to having one. Well, that's great because, you know, as Christy and I have, have talked about, and it's just one of those things when you when you read these books in, in uh, 2023, there's things that are even more pertinent to children and young people today. Like, I, and I'm thinking like sort of general middle class, like American readers, especially uh, that they are suddenly being confronted with that they were not being confronted with every day uh, when these books first came out. Um, yes, I agree. I mean, just just taking Ukraine. I mean, as I'm a Canadian, mm -hmm. so, um, mm -hmm. but this Ukraine is relevant basically to everyone in the world, or at least it should be. And I think that that the the trilogy itself is holding up really well as a commentary on something that's unfolding in front of us for the past year now um in terms of of war that is completely unjust and 
a just response to it, which I think the world is trying very hard, generally NATO certainly, um, to to put into place. Yes. And I've noticed that in the discussion about Ukraine, it kind of parallels, not exactly because The Hunger Games is a work of fiction that's set in a fictional world uh, with you know fictional just elements all around, but the notion of a war that is clearly just, uh, but the the approach to the oppressed side of the war differing within like the factions within the other side uh, how hard do we go what kind of rules do we follow do we do we allow our our actions to mirror the actions of the oppressor uh those are all kinds of things that have come up and that i've actually had to discuss with my kids the notion that just because you know, this army is doing these horrible things doesn't necessarily give you permission to do those things. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what the book is saying. Um, you know, I mean, Collins has been very cagey about about suddenly turning the United States into this this kind of microcosmic hived off from the rest of the world sort of sort of society that nobody else is interfering with. And we're we're not that because we are going to play, well, Russia, Ukraine out on on the world stage. Um, but at the same time, if the rest of us are the if if the NATO countries, just for example, are the districts, then our responses can be just, I think. Mm -hmm. So would you be so kind for the for the sake of our listeners to give a brief summary on, I guess, 2000 years of just war? theory like what what is it when... <laughs> i am not a political scientist or a political philosopher that. um and and the thing is suzanne collins's dad was yeah he was you know he was a military man but he was also a political scientist and this was an area that he studied it's not an area i've studied extensively i came to just war theory because i spent a lot of time well one thing my my faculty, um, part of the University of Alberta, was a Lutheran college for like 100 years. And then the U of A took it over before I started my job here. But we still have those roots. And because we had those roots, we have had theologians, you know, rocking around campus. Um, they, they, they pretty well all retired now. But one of them had introduced me to just war theory just when I when I got here. Um, and it was because I, I trained as an Americanist, um, American literature to 1865. So obviously, the, and focused on the, the antebellum period and the Civil War period. And so we had conversations about the Civil War. And, and, and Professor Mundell would talk to me about, about just war theory and how he interpreted the Civil War according to, you know, using those lenses. When I spent, I read the, and of course, I, I don't, I didn't normally work on contemporary literature. Um, I have worked in children's and YA literature for a long time now, um, but my training was early. So I was mostly working on 19th century American writing for children and by women. Um, so that was kind of the narrow focus. But of course, when, you, when you're teaching these courses, you have to bring it into the 20th and 21st century now and talk about contemporary texts. So of course, I'm reading this stuff. And and when I read The Hunger Games, and I read it on holiday, you know, it was like supposed to be pleasure fiction for me. <laughs> and then it bugged me. So <laughs> bugged me and bugged me and bugged me. And what really bugged me was 
the love triangle plot because it was never, I was never convinced it was a romance plot. Um, and so then I went looking for the things that the Collins had said. And I actually didn't find her comments about just war theory. I found her comments that she wrote about war for children. She didn't write about adolescence. She wrote about war for adolescents. And, and that's what led me to start thinking, again, what Digmar had talked to me about, about just war theory. And, and so I went right to the source with Michael Walzer and, and started thinking about, okay, if these are the, the premises of how we, we wage a just war, what, are, what, what, what can allow us to engage in a just war, and then how do we fight it justly? And of course, this is, I mean, the theory, this is the theory or the set of theories that, that underlies everything that we know about what we think about in the West, in the civilized world, about war crimes, mm -hmm. right? About the kinds of things that we look at and say, no, you can't do that. That's a war crime. That is a crime against humanity. And, and you will be punished for it you, right now through economic sanctions, again, thinking of, of Russia. But this is... Um, this is, you know, a set of actions that are unjust, that, that, that e even with the territorial takeover, Russia could still be waging a war that, that fit in the auspices of just war theory. Um, they've chosen not to do that in, in, in any way, shape or form. Their crimes are basically against everyone and everything. Um, and that's, that's just how that's going to go, I would suspect. But when I started to think about, you use the lenses of just war theory to read the trilogy, and then, then to use it to actually line it up alongside the Gale Pita um, and Katniss love, love trial triangle, it just kind of fell into place for me. And I mean, and what I really like about your podcast is you do the multimedia thing, uh, right? Because there are things that the trilogy or the films, the four films left out that that really sort out the just war theory, the treatment uh, in District 13 of Katniss's um crew of course that mm -hmm. doesn't come into the we get effie but we don't get the other people um right in in her team right yeah in her prep team and and the treatment of them and katniss's outrage her mother's outrage um the fact that they're surprised that this happens in district 13 is is when i think really the blinders come off for, for these people from from district 12 to say oh wait a minute that they're acting like the capital we understand what the capital acts like and they're doing these things here they're committing those kinds of acts against other humans and and then gail's complete disregard for it. he didn't care at all that that this team of you know a bumbling idiots mostly were, were being treated so very badly and and so that that is a moment that's not in the film but i think that that the film rather brilliantly condenses the idea, the, the alignment of, of Gale with unjust war when Katniss says goodbye to him in the last film. You know, she mm -hmm. asks him if the bomb that killed her sister was was one of ours, and he doesn't respond. He just mm -hmm. looks devastated, and then she says goodbye, and that's it for him. That's the last we, we have to deal with him. So I, I'm not going to talk at length about just war theory. It's I, all I know about it is actually in the article. I basically everything I I could figure out from all the reading I did, I condensed and stuck it in the article to talk about basically the premises behind entering a just war, conducting a just war, and then founding a just peace after the war, which which is basically how I've aligned the article. But the conclusion, I like the conclusion. I think the best because because there's some really good commentary there about what a just peace looks like, mm -hmm. running both through the 
through the, all the films and obviously through the books. Christy, did you have anything to ask? No, I just, uh, we hadn't talked about the omission of the prep team from the first right. movie. And I do find that so interesting because it's such a good encapsulation of what they're, like what she's trying to say at that point in the narrative. Uh, but probably I'm assuming because they sort of squandered the prep team in the first two movies, we see them maybe about 10, 20 seconds total. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, Frances Lawrence didn't want to use them as any kind of symbol because we didn't know them. And I think using Effie instead, well effective because it is Elizabeth Banks and she's putting on like a masterclass performance, doesn't quite have the same. Oomph. I think you're. I think you're correct that it's the it's the Gale moments that are what really hit here and they were able to handle that very well phil have you watched the final movie yet i have yes okay okay i still haven't i haven't done my rewatch yet i'm very excited (laughs) yeah well you know the thing is so they the film actually could have used effie to better effect oh i I agree that last when 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 when, what's his name um plutarch goes in to get her to get katniss ready to be the mockingjay she could have been in the same state that the prep team was in Mm. in the book Right, right, but she looks glamorous still. Because well, that's she's her nice. Most- yeah, she's yeah. not beaten. I mean, basically, the prep team is found in their own filth. They're emaciated. They're you know bruised and cut and beaten up and and terrorized. Right, and Effie's none of those things. And I think if you for viewers who haven't read the books, the murder of Gart Coin, Katniss executing Coin, is is comes as more of a surprise in in the films. Mm. Right. I mean, because we only have Snow's word for it in the films that Coin is evil. Right. That basically she's him. And and the book set us up in a lot of different ways to understand that when Katniss, you know, fires that arrow, she's actually acting in a just fashion, not as a deranged, you know, traumatized girl, which is what she could come off as in the film again. And I don't have a lot of distance here. You know, spent too much time with. Yeah. Uh, I actually just rewatched the film because they films because they popped up um, on something I was watching. It's like, oh, well, those are good. I'm gonna you know go to Netflix and watch those again. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, it's fascinating to me that a that a children's that a children's book series or I guess young adult book series would that has been as successful as it has been and has a new book out and has a new movie coming out. The 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 climax of the whole thing hinges on our hero uh, extrajudicially judici- extra executing <laughs> the president-elect of what is essentially the new United States. And that they manage to, that Suzanne Collins manages to pull this off and maintain Katniss's like the sense of 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 just uh yeah. not even it doesn't even feel like retribution it's like she's finishing the actual war and the and it and it and it reminded me of how you would position in your writing the fact that the war isn't just like the the armies marching or the guns firing the war begins on the other on the districts well before the fighting, like it, the the capital has essentially waged war on the districts for years. Uh, and that definition of war, I find very enlightening for young readers. Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I, I mean, I don't know how well your average, you know, 11 year old is contextualizing, say, Ukraine. 
in mm. terms of what they're learning from the Hunger Games. So I hope that there's some sort of echo going through that that they're picking up on on the fact that that just the action of sending children annually into an arena to kill each other um, is is an oppression that has has moved into such extreme violence that it is war. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I mean, the the erosions that, that we see happening around the world, but Russia will stick to Russia and Ukraine, just the fact that the lining up, the many months of preparation, you could tell the war was coming. So war had really already started. The Ukrainian people were put into a mindset that they were going, they were at war already. Right. Right. And that that their actions going forward were going to be people at war, um, whatever that was going to look like. And And this is what... I mean the the and the embattled aspects of the districts, um, the the children's. You know when Rue talks about what life was like at home for her, uh, when Katniss sees the fence for the first time in Rue's district, um, understanding that they she actually had it pretty easy in twelve, even right. as compared to you know to how Rue grew up, even as she's understanding that her sister has already been devastated by the loss of their father through enforced labor, through all of these things. So, yes, I I agree. I think that, and I think the film does a pretty good job of characterizing, you know, the lead, the protagonist, well, Gail and Katniss anyway, as soldiers long before they're actually soldiers. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, and I think that, and honestly, I think Christy and I discussed this. It feels like it really find, the movies really find their footing in regards to that. Uh, with the second film, uh, when they don't have to worry so much about just setting up a world for viewers. Right. Uh, I feel like that's when it really is like trying to be more about something. And it's hard because it's hard not to make the Hunger Games themselves into a form of entertainment for the viewers. Uh, because that's like they're supposed to look like entertainment. And right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and the well and, and you know just talking about the games themselves and in the actual two arenas that that you know that we that we see um and that we read about the there's a lot of different moments where both film and novels work hard to underscore that this kind of violence is really awful this is not vi this is not enter this is actually not entertaining yeah right <laughs> um there's some pretty visceral moments the um when the the tracker when the hornets hornets come down right yeah. yeah um and kill the one girl right i mean it's it's torture it this is not the kind of gratuitous violence that we're used to seeing in in you know action films yeah. right certainly this is not in children's that, film. that kind of brings it home right yeah right and and, uh, and just in terms of collins um her first series great uh the gregor the overlander series mm -hmm. um is also very much warish She's also, and she's, those are that, that's, those books aren't written for adolescents. They're written for, for like 10 year olds. Right. Mm. And, uh, and they are, they are very much about, about war only, only it's with other creatures. So, so it's war with another. Um, but she sets up the auspices of, of just war in, in those texts too. Um, certainly a lot more, um, shaded because they are written for younger readers. Um, right. But uh, yeah, she's definitely focused on it. Yeah. I've been curious as to what she's going to do. Is she's going to do another trilogy with the with the President Snow book? <laughs> I would what? really hope that. Have you have you read the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? I did. 
Yeah. And yeah. Phil and I haven't talked about it, but I've been trying not I've been trying not to talk about it on the show since I read it over the last couple of weeks. And I find it a I find it to be a deeply fascinating and also incredibly frustrating book. I think it needs the trilogy. I I think I read it quickly thinking all along, um, because I have a real tendency to not read the first book if I know there's gonna be more. Oh, sure. sure. Um, I, I do not like to do that to myself because I find it irritating. Although I've tricked numerous friends into going, hey, this novel is great. You should oh. read a minute. Uh, I st- and then I stopped reading. And this was actually the passage, the Justin Cronin um, trilogy. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, mm. and, and a friend said, what are you reading this good? And I said, I started the passage and it's really good. And so she went off with it. And then I was like, wait a minute, is this a trilogy or something? So then I, oh, yes, it is. So I just set it aside. And then she finished it and gave me holy hell for doing that to her. <laughs> Meaning to trick her, I just forgot. Um, but uh, so I read it very quickly and thought, I, I'm i going to wait and see what happens with this. You know, the yeah. Philip Pullman, right? So the mm-hmm. he has the new trilogy started. Yeah. And so he's too into it. And I have not, cra- I own them, but I have not cracked into them. So that's how I feel about <laughs> the new Collins book. I, I'm just going to wait and see. I have... I had hoped that she could do more with the story. It's a little disappointing. Again, I'm just going to keep skating over this and not go too deep in it. But it fe- there feels like there's a bit of editorial pressure to make a romance a really important part of the book. And one of the reasons Phil and I appreciate the romance to some extent in the Hunger Games trilogy is because it is so clearly a metaphor by the end. And this, to me, I'm not sure that needle was threaded quite as expertly, but we'll we'll get to it, Phil, and I will okay. not shut up about that book once we get there. <laughs> Well, it's not just that the it's not just that the 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 original trilogy's romance is a metaphor. It's either it's that Katniss doesn't seem that interested in it. No, throughout Katniss the course is very of the uninterested. She's like, no, there's a war going on. Yeah, and the the guys are like, but 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 but. And she's like, no, there is literally a war occurring. I don't have time for this right now. And I appreciate that in a in a love triangle. Well, I mean, just her refusal. Like, I'm I'm not thinking about this. I mean, mm-hmm. over and over. I'm not thinking about this right now. I am never having children, right? This mm-hmm. the, this repetition over and over again that I am not going to engage with this part of of a normal life because our lives simply are not normal. Right. And the two guys being very realistically. Uh, portrayed as teenage boys who can't stop thinking about it, which? Uh, uh, which actually, I mean, honestly, did strike me as very believable. This this tendency to demand clarification on your relationship status and at very inappropriate times. Uh, well, how, I'm always, my, I'm, always like an ownership thing too, right? Mm-hmm. That she's oh, also territory yeah. to be conquered or owned or something so i agree particularly in gail's case where his mindset is so worry oriented to begin with it uh yeah i've uh, i'm if i have to pick a side i'm pro i'm pro pita but i'm mostly just pro katniss uh figuring her stuff out before she engages in anything at all in doing the paper i got a lot fonder of pita um <laughs> because of his his he will as i i think i are one thing i say is he's he's the moral center right yes that, yeah. that, that in in all cases if you need to figure out what what just war what justice actually looks like um no matter how many times we see cadness on the steps of a justice building right. um peter is still the justice building 
and, and to just gauge every action against his verdict on it um, really just brings you right back to what justice actually looks like. Right. And uh, so I, I became a lot fonder of the blonde-haired boy as the uh, <laughs> as the the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's also imparting to children that war isn't fighting or not fighting. Like they, they, those aren't. It's not this binary choice. Uh, you either are, you either are for just fighting or you are completely a pacifist. And also the notion that peace doesn't necessarily equal not fighting. Uh, because when you have to fight, you have to fight. And PETA understands that he's just not the same type of fighter as as Gale. And I don't know, there's something. Why do you as a as a as a person who researches these uh, these kind of books, someone who studies this and writes about it? Why do you feel it's important for young adult fiction to address these kinds of issues? Well, uh Again, current events. <laughs> Just, um, you know, this kind of YA, YA fiction can go a long distance, um, as we were talking about, uh, you know, with your own daughter reading reading the Bardugo um, novels, that that it can go a long way in teaching children and young adults how to be in the world. And, and in the case of, because we were having a conversation about the Six of Crows duology, Mm. Um, mm -hmm. about, I mean, that one very much about being empathetic and understanding uh, mental illness, um, being faced with with mental illness. You know, when I was putting that article together, it um, the, the I was working with a grad student and and she had identified uh, a Sarah Mass um, Moss maybe um, series as another potential to look at manifestations of mental illness in YA fantasy and and ways in which it actually normalized mental illness, made mental illness um, understandable, acceptable, inspired empathy, all of that. And and she ended up rejecting the 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 Moss books because they they were not great mm. at doing that. They <laughs> they held up um these these kiddos with special powers um, and who were also traumatized and mentally ill, but they turned, the, I mean, Moss turned them all into like murderers, like wholesale slaughter there. And, and so Kelly and I just said, well, that, that's, that's not, it's not doing the thing that we think that the YA fantasy can be very good at doing, which is to actually build empathy in its young readers. So you, you can see YA fiction, fantasy fiction, maybe in particular, um, helping its young readers go through some personal work in terms of being empathetic. But books like the Collins, both of Collins series, actually, um, give young readers examples of how to be in a world in which there is violence. So how to deal with those external forces that actually do traumatize. I do have another, um, I have another article on the Hunger Games. Um, and I, I, and basically it's about aligning what happens to Katniss's body, um, so it's an eco-critical reading, um, with what happens to the Appalachians, right? She's a very, I, I have written about the Appalachians and coal mining songs as well, actually. I have diverse tastes. And and basically my argument is that the one thing that, that Collins does with the trilogy is she holds these two things together. And of course, she spent a lot of her, I mean, she moved around a lot as a kid, but she did spend a lot of time in the Appalachians. 
and understands the the trauma that that particular area has suffered over and over again over you know the last 300 years of coal mining various strategies about extracting coal and so she when she puts Katniss there in the Appalachians and then her body is is kind of devastated physically and then restored and devastated and and you know restored um uh, i i bring those those into conversation together because this is very much about external forces and what they're doing and what they can do um to a young person and how that young person can respond in ways that are other than internally manifested trauma or PTSD or some other form of mental illness that has come up because of these external forces. So the fighting back, right? The dealing with the interior, but also dealing with exterior forces. And and I think that YA fiction in general can do this very well. Um, you know, I, as I was I was noting before um, we began recording that the project I'm working on right now is on on um, novels, young adult novels about acquaintance rape. And there are hundreds Mm -hmm. And published in the last 10, 10 to 12 years, there's, there's, I, my, I'm working with a corpus of over a hundred novels. Um, those novels go a long way. I mean, they're, they're not always successful. They're certainly not all always successful, but they go a long way in challenging the codes of rape culture that we live in. And I think that, that girls and teenagers reading them are probably going to be able to glean some pretty good strategies for dealing with the world they live in, which is a rape culture. Mm -hmm. That helped. Yeah, I touched on a lot of stuff there, didn't you? You did. That's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, and you reminded uh, me and of the conversation that Christy and I had, uh, probably when we talked about the first movie, which is the fact that they remove Appalachia from Katniss and Peta. They they take that element out. They don't have recognizable accents. They sort of have this neutral like speaking voice uh despite the fact that both of those actors are from the american south and can probably easily slip into those accents okay. uh and it's i find it fascinating that and i'm going to have to read that article now that you've <laughs> that you drew that the the parallel between those two things um because that's it's another oh i think the the, the large the, the only maybe only real aside from the landscape itself in the films which is the Appalachians, right. um, is the song, right? The, the, the folk songs. are there. That, that's your direct connection there. But honestly, uh, Katniss could have, Jennifer Lawrence could have sung those songs with her Kentucky accent, mm -hmm. right? I mean, right. she could have used that accent all the way through. She's She has, you know, dredged it up in other films. Mm -hmm. And what, Winter's Bowl? Yes. Is, yes. Yes. She does. Oh, yes. Um, she does. Voice yes. I'm so glad you guys are so much better at grabbing these. <laughs> uh, That's okay. In one episode, I kept referring to it as winter bones. So <laughs> winter's, winter's oh, not as like way. her, uh, her sizzle reel for this. That's true. Movies. That's yeah. true. And it's not the lovely bones. That's what I kept confusing it with. Yeah, that is what you kept confusing it with. Yeah, it's but you're right. Um, they they the remove. Bones. They remove something that I think should be integral. It certainly is integral in in the way that that we understand, or the way that I understand Katniss as as an Appalachian girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm, definitely. Um, yeah. Did you have anything to ask, Christy? No, I'm just thinking about the physicality of Katniss broadly right now. Oh. Just like a, a well, it's so interesting that it, I mean, like, yeah, they tear her down multiple times, and they have to build her back up over and over again. And by the the end of the final book, not the epilogue, but the closing of the final book, she is a shell 
of herself. And I don't recall how well they're able to reconstruct that in the movies. I assume they're okay at it, but maybe not expert, which I'm okay with them doing. I didn't want, we talked about this, I didn't want uh, Jennifer Lawrence to lose an unhealthy amount of weight for one scene in the first movie. Right. I don't want to see that in the fourth either, but she does a good job of being broken, certainly. Mm-hmm. She's really good at that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought they I thought they probably could have used the makeup better to I think there are, there are times... And her face down. Yeah. Oh, particularly that, right? Because they talk in the first movie, like the making of documentary, about how the scene where she is in the rain and Kita gives her the bread, uh, that that was the first thing they filmed. I kind of think it shows because there's not... Like, it doesn't seem like the character's particularly lived in yet. It mm. gets better. But yeah, the, the, the first movie's a little rough. It's not bad. It's just a little rough around the edges. <laughs> yeah, but it, and it's interesting how when you try to translate author's intent onto the screen, you you run up against, you know, hundreds of other intents uh, that are all vying for attention. You know, like you have to keep your stars looking attractive. You have to appeal to marketing. You have to, you know, the costumes have to look good enough so that you can probably market those when, uh, you know, regardless of what the author wants. And I know that uh, I know that they, you know, did their best to honor that uh-huh. in the making of the film but uh, i mean hollywood's a machine and uh, it's not an author creating a product or a a, a work of art it's it's a committee yeah yeah yeah, yeah. They, they were good about showing bruises but not like scorched skin oh right, right. <laughs> right. Oh, well that's the, the other time... thing is you yeah. can't you can't do the Hunger Games literally the whole time, or else you'd have an R-rated film because war is inherently R-rated. I mean, like yeah. if, to put it in no other way, uh, if you show war if as realistically as possible, it's not something that's easily digestible. It's a stumbling exactly. block for the fourth movie, I think, because mm-hmm. uh, when Phil and I talked about the book, we both just can't get over how brutal that one gets near the end, especially with like. The relentlessness and meaninglessness of death at the end of that book, which isn't, that's not what's going to get you the R reading, but the lizard men like tearing people apart and the melting skin might, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. That's, well, I think that that's probably where it comes the closest to war. Yeah. Right. right. That, that perpetual onslaught that you know, no one is ever safe anywhere. It, right. There's no sense of safety at, at any time. And, and I, and of course, this is, the capital waging an unjust war so with the pods and all of that stuff going on all of that that just miserable one thing after another i can kill you a thousand ways basically right is it uh, and and katniss and her team just trying to cope and get through to end this um you know right up until until the the bombs that land on prim and the other children so yeah it's um it, it's I think they get the sense of violence of actually yeah. living in in war. I mean, this is probably. I come to think of it, they were rerunning the the Hunger Games movies right around the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, it, you know, if you want to explain to your your average eight year old um, what it's like to be a kiddo in Ukraine right now, that's probably not a bad way to do it. Wow, uh, it's it's there. It's going to give them some thought, possibly a bad dream or two, but it's uh, it still does, I think, the job that Collins intended the books to do. One thing I wanted to ask you was uh, there's a moment in the third book where 
uh, uh, Katniss, they come across a woman in an apartment who seems to be turning to shout that the rebels have, you know, are in her apartment. And Katniss, without hesitating, kills this civilian woman. Uh, and the books don't, you know, it struck me as, I don't know, odd. Katniss herself doesn't seem to dwell on it much. I think she only brings it back up one time in the book when to me that was like a pivotal moment uh, story-wise and thematically is the fact that civilians uh, civilians will be will be killed in in especially in urban war like this. Uh, and I don't know how did you how did, how did you do you remember that moment? How do you feel that was I do, handled? I do. I also remember though that she adds it in a couple of times later in the lists of things that she's regretting. Mm, right, mm -hmm. the moments that she can't really deal with. Because there's no real dealing with it. Yeah, it was it was an act of survival, and it and it had to be done. And she saved herself and the squad. Um, but but in in the listing of it, the things that she's not ever going to let go of, even as she may not actually face it head on. Um, so I think it it falls into it's. I agree, Bill. It's almost a gray area thing. Killing the civilian, but this is killing a civilian who was going to do an action that would lead to the death of of Katniss and 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 her comrades right yeah so it is a pivotal moment but it's also that and it's also that you know Collins has has built her as a kind of an ideal warrior right her reflexes are very yeah. good and and so that that instantaneous you know pulling the arrow out and and letting go is um is something that we're used to seeing over and over again that this absolute instantaneous reflex um, when threatened, and that was that was a threat. Um, so I, you know, it's not the slaughter of civilians. It's put it this way: she didn't rape and torture that woman, right? Right. <laughs> um, she killed that woman who was about to do an act, who was undergoing and undertaking an act of aggression, right? You think? Yeah, it's hard not to. It's hard not to fall into the trap for me personally of like being a backseat, uh, like a Monday Monday morning. Quarter, whatever you call it, quarterback. I don't know the expression. Yeah. Uh, when the whole point, of course, is that it is the fog of war. Like you don't you you react when you have to, and you don't have the chance to to weigh the moral balance of what I'm about to do. So you're you're absolutely right. Like it, it, this is me as a reader looking back on something and like playing it back in my head. But obviously, Katniss could that have gone differently? Right. 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 Um, the need to silence this woman instantly um was there was there another way around it um i think collins doesn't give us a lot of outs i think that she mm. i think we're meant to question katniss's actions kind of throughout because she is killing a lot of people as it turns out <laughs> um but to my mind it's the it's that when we when we compare them to what gail does and then we compare them to what basically peter refuses to do or is forced to do then then we can see the needle shifting towards Peta and and justice. Yeah. Also, yeah. also, in the in the first book, when she kills someone in the games for the first time, she has that is the longest you ever dwell on a single person that Katniss has killed, and I think that's very intentional uh, because she's reflecting on it. She's thinking, well, this was necessary for my survival, and then she it feels as though she internalizes that because then she's able to kill more easily. Although I suppose the death at the cornucopia at the very end of the first book is a little bit her uh, prolonging the inevitable but that's um 
that's used to great dramatic effect. So I'll right. give Collins a pass on still including like how uh, uh, like the drudgery of that scene. It just goes on and on and on. It does. It does indeed. Um, I think she and she pauses over the boy she the boy that killed Rue when she mm-hmm. kills him. Yes, and that's that is reaction. But he comes up again a few times. The image of him in the the film, right when she's shooting at a turkey or something, and it's him. Is it um, that that this was the body of a person her age, and it was basically right in front of her, right? Yeah, it yeah. wasn't a huge distance away, and that that you know, and of course he had already he'd already used his spear. He was unarmed at that point. So uh, the the ones that keep coming back to her are the ones that are that are they're not just interesting they're indicative of of how she feels about the deaths that she has actually caused. Yeah, it is in many ways like the Full Metal Jacket of kids books. Like it's yeah. like it, it it, seriously like it's like here it is like here's here it is like ah. just right here on the page for you if you want to know what it was there it is. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, now only thinking of what if Kubrick had directed the Hunger Games movies, but it <laughs> lose my mind, yeah. <laughs> lose my fragile. No, mind. <laughs> oh, no one wants <laughs> those poor actors. <laughs> oh, dear. Five year long shooting process. Um, well, I am going to. Uh, if you don't have any more questions, uh, Christy, I am going to start wrapping things up here. Uh, but Professor Hard, do you have any final thoughts on the Hunger Games before we before we let you go? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that I think I've said most of it. I think I would just reemphasize that it's it's holding up very very well, and it uh, in terms of of you know parents educators um, using it as as a teaching tool. I think it's really come into its own with a lot of the world events going on. I mean, we haven't had you know a, a major full scale war um the way we're seeing over in Europe right now and yeah. and I think that it's a good good set of texts and films to help contextualize this for younger readers um that that this is the kind maybe before you would have just let the kid read it or watch it and let it go <laughs> but now at this point it's we're at a, a place in world history where I think um this is where you have the conversations right when I teach children's lit and people get annoyed with me for making them read things like speak um mm. how like, could okay. anyone be annoyed at having to read speak huh. uh well <laughs> i understand no the whole oh, i understand thing, right? why but oh, by the way Christy, professor hard has uh insisted that we add it and its film adaptation to our list so i've been meaning to ask you about that for a long time because i that would uh it would mark a departure, but we're already kind of headed in that direction. So why not just go all in? There you well, go. Well, it's a it's a good launch pad. So it's an incredible book. Yeah, that's all I have. Thank you both. It was lovely talking. Thank to you. you. Thank you so for joining much. us. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well. Thank you. That was our interview with Professor Roxanne Hard uh, from the University of Alberta's Augustana faculty. She uh, just I just want to thank her once again for being on the show. It was amazing to talk with her. It was a delight. It shook things up. Don't worry. Next week, we will be back with part two of Mockingjay. And I I was going to say that would be rounding out our Hunger Games coverage. But we've got a few more tricks up our sleeve. Don't you worry. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Pizza Toast Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Pizza Toast Pod. 
podcast. Uh, drop us a line if you like the show, if you listen to the show, if anyone listens to the show anymore. Uh, I'd really appreciate knowing that, and Christy and I love being flattered. So if you like the show, uh, let us know that you like it and tell us how amazing we are. Uh, otherwise, thank you so much for listening, and I'm just going to say goodbye to... Professor Roxanne Hard. And thank you once again. See you later.